Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, April 6th, 2016. Uh, welcome, chilly April. Um, hopefully you saw the schedule of really luminary speakers this month who are joining us. Uh, started Starting with Dr. Hine, who we could say is a visiting professor, but she is a member, uh, adjunct professor of the, uh, of the Department of Family and Community Medicine here at the Geisel School of Medicine, so she is one of our own. Um, first, uh, 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 and up to some good, so in our, in our world of a safety culture that we all participated in training from, uh, Bridget was making rounds as a safety specialist um, and heard a story that one of our uh, one of our nurses, one of our triage nurses in, in GAP, in general academic pediatrics, Donna, um, noted that there had been a narcotic prescription printed on one of the printers from EDH, and it was sitting there unattended and uncollected. And she, she did the right thing. She picked it up, and she disposed of it and destroyed it. And I think knowing, as we all know, the, the scourge of opioid addiction and, and of course, neonatal abstinence, that's the, that's the sort of safety culture that rather than walking by the printer and assuming that someone was going to pick it up, we um, we uh, give kudos to Donna, and I'm blanking on her last name. Someone in Gap, help me. Thank you, Donna Real. That's right. Thank you. So, so a, a good job in the ambulatory safety setting. Um, it is my pleasure. I just ha had the opportunity to meet Dr. Hine, and I wish I had joined for dinner last night uh, uh, for for Grand Rounds. Uh, and, and a native of the University of Wisconsin, and, and I don't know, depending on your political leanings, you may thank Wisconsin for last night or not. Um, um, but the bachelor's from the University of Wisconsin was a Dartmouth Medical School student before we were a four-year med medical school uh, and graduated with a, a BMS and completed her medical training at the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Columbia University, where she rose to the ranks, um, ultimately, I think is continues to be professor of pediatrics at Columbia. Um, not, not now, because now I'm here. But, but, but certainly um, rose to the ranks of professor after serving an internship at Albert Einstein College of Medicine at Bronx Municipal Hospital Center, as well as her residency and a postdoctoral fellowship in adolescent medicine at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City. So significant component of her career in New York City as well as Washington was on the Board of Overseers here at the Geisel School of Medicine and, and is a fellow member of the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine. She's speaking today uh, with a vast and impressive CV as a founding member of Vermont's Green Mountain Care Board overseeing our states. I'm a member, I'm a resident of Vermont by overseeing the state's comprehensive health re reform law started in 2011. Former president of the William T. Grant Foundation, having served on the boards for not-for-profit organizations that focus on health care reform, as well as youth development, global health, and the professionalization of humanitarian assistance. Current board service includes the RAND Health Advisory Board, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program, National Advisory Committee, and the International Rescue Committee Overseers, uh, as in the past has served on the National Board of Medical Examiners, Consumers Union Board, and Child Fund International Board, among many others others. Uh, she, her research focus at Columbia was adolescent development, HIV and AIDS, starting, I believe, one of the very first HIV adolescent clinics, if not the first in the United States, one of the first in the world, was on the professional staff and during her time in Washington on the U.S. Senate Finance Committee as a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow. 
He was executive officer of the Institute of Medicine at the National Academies and has received lifetime achievement awards from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program, the Granger Lifetime Achievement Award for Social Justice and Distinguished Career from our own Geisel School of Medicine slash Dartmouth Medical School. Um, lives currently in Vermont and is going to share with us, I understand, at the end, um, some of her current non-medical passions as well. So without further ado, welcome once again, Dr. Karen Hine. Thank you, Keith. Well, good morning. Sounds uh, as if we're going to have some fun together this morning. We're going to take a long, strange journey together. Uh, for me, this is back to the future 50 years ago, half a century ago. I sat here as a first-year medical student at Dartmouth. So what's happened over 50 years, so much easier to look back and make sense of it than it was looking forward. I entitled this presentation, Outside Looking In, Inside Looking Out. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at ourselves and our roles in health in terms of our patients, but really through the lens of what can we as health people actually do to improve health? So this journey is going to take us, as I say, through my five decades since I began here, but also to talk a lot about you and your journey. So to do that, I wanted to start with a metaphor. This metaphor works for me. There's a Rilke poem that speaks about ever-expanding circles. And in a sense, these 50 years for me have been an exploration of ever-widening circles. They have taken me from my home in New York all the way to Mongolia and now here back to Vermont. Spirals are an important metaphor in nature. This as a hurricane. It's also the way trees grow. They don't just grow up. They grow up and out in a spiral fashion. And as you'll see, they work, I think, in terms of their sometimes turbulence, but also their cohesiveness as a natural form that perhaps we can learn about not only ourselves, but about the nature of health. So I want you to take a moment, think about who would, has been an important person that led you to being here in this auditorium this morning? Was there a mentor, a person in your family, somebody in your life who sort of didn't just show you by the way they live, but actually helped to open some doors for you to lead you to this place in this moment? That person for me, or one of those people, is Jim Strickler, here, former dean. At pivotal points in this spiral journey, he did things like appoint me to the Board of Overseers when I was just a young thing, having just graduated. He then got me involved with the International Rescue Committee, and here we are in a Burmese refugee camp along the Thai border. He's showing kids the wonders of his camera. And most recently, as he continues in his role to be a model of how to reinvent oneself as one in his 60s did a new residency with on-call as a geriatrician. So I think as we talk about our journey, these journeys have been enabled by very special people in our life. And I wanted to begin my description with Jim. 
So the imprinting experiences for me 50 years ago were two. This one is a photograph of Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx, where I was uh, a student health organization volunteer, a student activist in the 60s. There's a book written about this by Fitzhugh Mullen called White Coat Clenched Fist. It's just been republished because it's so relevant now to a new generation of student activists. Um, but here we were. My first publication was called Border Babies, Kids Who Were Growing Up in the Hospital. The other major imprinting experience for me was in Liberia, in upcountry Liberia, where I was as a fourth-year medical student, did my sub-internship in Zorzor, Liberia. So here we were giving vaccines. This is the very place where Lassa fever appeared soon after and Ebola in 1972. So once again, some almost 50 years later, seeing those imprinting experiences of how to care for people in the context of their family and their communities has so impressed and imprinted on me the way I have then conducted the rest of my career. But once again, looking back to Liberia as a place where new and important lessons are being learned in emerging infections and in so many other ways. So my first chapter of six chapters I'm going to just touch very lightly on was in academia. My first job was in jail. I ran New York City's detention center for juvenile delinquents. And from there learned and to observe what the kids were there to tell us about emerging epidemics. At that time, heroin, just as now, was an emerging epidemic. Also HIV, so we started to think about, well, what if HIV, let's see, it's happening in men who are in their 30s, wonder when they got infected. Given the rates of unintended pregnancies, what would happen if HIV were in the teenage population? So we opened our doors, the Adolescent AIDS Program at Montefiore is the first in the country in 1987, and we published this little book, AIDS Trading Fears for Fact with a wonderful Keith Haring cover. We were right about the idea, and this program, I believe, is still the largest in the country, run by Donna Futterman, who was recently here at Dartmouth visiting. So what were the lessons, then, in academia from jail and from, in a sense, heralding the epidemic that was to hit our shores in terms of HIV in adolescence. The lessons were learn from the people. It was the kids who pointed out the way that we needed to go. We opened our door for this program with a million dollar grant from CDC and not one teenager with HIV. Because the paper that we wrote, HIV in adolescence, a rationale for concern was the one that we used evidence-based epidemiologic approaches and modeling to say, even though we can't see it, it's got to be here. So my lessons from academia were listen, watch, and learn from the people, and then use your skills to try to look ahead to where the world is going and try to get there alongside your patients. Chapter two was then, okay, lessons learned from HIV in the Bronx. How can we change the system in which we're all trying to improve health? And it took me to Washington, as Keith said, to the U.S. Senate Finance Committee. 20 years ago, when the Clintons were in the White House, we were trying to write health care reform law in the Congress in the Senate. 
as Keith said to me before we started, you know, all this tinkering that we've been doing over the last few decades, we need to have a system that actually works. Our system is so broken that tinkering isn't going to get us to where we need to be. And that was the fuel that sent me to Washington to try to look at the systemness or the lack of systemness and what were we going to do about that rather than sitting in the clinical setting and watching this stuff sort of come down the path at us. So having then seen a little bit about how healthcare reform law is and isn't made in the Senate, I stayed, as Keith mentioned, at the Institute of Medicine as the executive officer, trying to at least connect research with policy making. So this all sounds kind of pretty highfalutin, the towers of power, but I think it's important to recognize that these two are places where you as physicians or health providers or business leaders, loving having Steve Voigt here as the head of Rethink Health of the Upper Valley. We're going to get to you, Steve, a little later. <laughs> but it is we, if we are at the tables where these decisions are being made, that can come out with a more rational, helpful, and cohesive and coherent system. That's what I learned in Washington. So after first chapter of academia, then government, the next was think tank. So as Keith mentioned, I was president of William T. Grant Foundation. You may have heard on NPR using research to improve the lives of young people. One of the things we got to do at that point in the foundation's history was have a White House conference on raising responsible and resourceful young people. Hillary was first lady. I was president of William T. Grant. We did it together positive, assets-based approach to youth development in a White House conference. Quite a contrast to the last and the next few White House conferences on youth, which emphasize problems and deficits, mm -hmm. underage drinking. But in that situation, again, as a physician, happened to have been uh, president of the, of the foundation, but the point was to introduce assets-based approach, wider vision of health, wider vision of well-being, even in the way that a White House conference was being framed. So outward trajectory all the way to these towers of power. And then after about five years as foundation president, I quit. And I said, like Gandhi, as I started the new millennium, I wanted my life to be my message. At that point, we had wars going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. I simply wanted to go as a student of the world again, but to bring an American face without a gun to some other areas. So with that, I stepped down from the foundation and launched a decade of global health which there are vast possibilities as depicted in this photograph in August in Mongolia, where I've spent quite a bit of time. But really, it was a huge turning point for me. And I think as you think about your own outward spiral trajectories, they were influenced and bent and then finally formed by some of those special people in your life. For me, one of them is Bayara Tsetseg Jigmadesh. I met her as president of the foundation. We became very close friends. She is like my Mongolian daughter. Here she is graduating from Harvard Law School. She then returned to Mongolia, was unemployed, but a new president came in and looked around and said, who can help me rewrite the laws of Mongolia to make it a civil society and follow the rule of law? 
And here was Bayara, shown with the president of Mongolia on the occasion of the Lunar New Year. She is not yet 40 years old. She is the most senior person in the Mongolian Department of Justice rewriting their laws. So on this spiral journey that I and you are on together, this outward spiral journey, as we meet people along the way, it is Bayara whom I would look to for this next wave of innovation, creativity, and leadership. So there you have it, maybe 15 minutes of 50 years of an outward journey. We're going to get back to that spiral analogy at the end of this presentation, but I wanted to bring this all home, and in fact, to Vermont, where I have lived, I've had a home for 46 years, and lived full-time for 16 years. So the Vermont solution, You're just, we're just across the river, obviously 40% of the patients here at Dartmouth are from Vermont, many of you live in Vermont. I'm going to focus on Vermont um, because I think it makes some points that may or may not be true here in New Hampshire, but certainly make the point of what we're talking about as Keith referred to the lack of systemness in the country. Vermont is seriously trying to do something about that. So people make fun of it. They think we're so rural, we're so little, we're so Bernie. <laughs> but in fact, uh, we are doing a very important social experiment right now in health and healthcare reform. So if we're successful right there across the river, we would be the first to have a unified health budget, not a healthcare budget. We would be the first to have an all-payer model and a unified claims database, which was just challenged in the Supreme Court, actually. If you're interested, I'll tell you more about that. We would be the first to have a statewide ACO. There would be a single pot of money that goes along with this all-payer waiver into which Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial monies would go so that the monies could actually be allocated in a more Keith system way rather than currently the piecemeal and stovepipe way that they are. There would be a workforce plan and most interestingly, a regulatory authority that's centralized under an independent board that exists. Pretty much a lot of this now exists in Vermont. Why are we doing all this again? What is the problem that we're trying to solve? I like this slide because it simply shows the mismatch between how we're currently spending the healthcare dollars and what are called the determinants of health. So you're probably all familiar with this concept, but this is a great picture to make the point. 88 cents on the dollar is going to healthcare. Healthcare contributes roughly 10, maybe 20% to improving health. So we got a serious mismatch in how we're currently allocating our scarce resources, leaving maybe three or four cents on the dollar for prevention and population health. So to address this problem, we need to step back and do a whole bunch of things differently. I'm sure all of you have heard about the so-called social determinants of health. This is something which medicine has just discovered that most people knew, which is healthcare is a piece but is not a large piece of people's health. So in this depiction of social determinants, you could say that healthcare is that little wedge that, um, oops, sorry, 
But those sort of personal dimensions of behavior and environmental exposure, so that's, that's the big enchilada. So we're going to talk a little bit about, okay, but we're doctors or healthcare professionals. How do we embrace or do something about the lack of systemness when it comes to social determinants? If there's one picture that I would hope you could take away and use in your everyday lives, it would be the CDC impact pyramid. How many of you have heard about this? Okay, so just take a quick moment to say, let's look at all of the things that we are trying to currently do to make a difference in people's lives to improve their health. And let's look at it in relation to what has the smallest impact and what has the largest impact. The smallest impact is right up here in the one-on-one -on -one stuff with the counseling and education. A little bit bigger inter um, impact would be the clinical interventions like treatments for high blood pressure, diabetes control. Long-lasting protective interventions like immunizations, that's starting to have a bigger impact on more people's health. Changing the context, this is a really important one that I'll bet every one of you could do a whole lot more in, which is to help make the healthy choice the easy choice. And lastly, to address the fundamental basis of the pyramid, which are socioeconomic factors, poverty, education, housing, and inequality. Keep this in mind. Are, where are your efforts and activities going? My guess is because this is largely a clinical department, many or most of your efforts are right at the top of the pyramid. That's what you were trained to do. That's what the system rewards you for. But folks, if we're going to improve health, we got to start paying attention to those wider parts of the pyramid and seriously figure out how does a department of pediatrics, how do pediatricians, people who care about kids, actually affect the bottom part of the pyramid. I know you're doing that in some ways, but just to keep the uh, relative contribution in mind of clinical care, and how narrow it really is when you're looking at the contributors to health. So knowing this, I actually stopped what I was doing, my decade of global health, traveling around the world, learning and doing, to become a founding member of the Green Mountain Care Board right after Act 48 was passed in 2011. I completed my three-year term, so I'm still helping to co-chair the population and prevention activities in Vermont, but I just wanted to show you this uh, picture from the early days of the Green Mountain Care Board to spend just a few minutes on, so who cares about the Green Mountain Care Board? Well, it's pretty unique and solves one of those big problems of Keith's lack of systemness because it was actually a board in charge of moderating costs and improving health for Vermonters. So the Renown Care Board is a five-member board appointed by the governor, but is independent to advise, but also to regulate, innovate, and evaluate. So this little board is actually in charge of hospital budgets. We sign off and say yes, no, or change it. Brought the cost down to around 3.5% net patient revenue increases over this last couple of years. Um, certificates of need, major capital expenditures, this board actually regulates those things. In terms of innovation, 
when ACOs were beginning to be formed in Vermont, they, the hospitals couldn't even meet together because that would be collusion. But the Green Mountain Care Board, because we're an independent organization, can convene. So all of the standards and the outcome measures and the payment distribution and the attribution could be worked out under the auspices of the Green Mountain Care Board. Um, Evaluation. So it is our job to figure out, so how the heck is any of this doing to improve the health of Vermonters? I'm just going to take a moment to describe this Green Mountain dashboard that's mentioned. So we didn't just say, are we improving access or health or any of that stuff? We said, are we improving the well-being of Vermonters? How could we measure that? Well, how about this way? Are infants and new mothers thriving? Are the elderly living independently in the places of their choice and with dignity? So these are the outcome measures that the Green Mountain Care Board has adopted for our efforts. They're broad and they have to do with well-being. A very similar set of measures, the well-being of Vermonter framework, has been adopted by the administration and their RBA, Results-Based Accountability. So now you have the government of the state of Vermont and the Green Mountain Care Board using these outcome measures that actually have to do with the well-being of Vermonters. That is a leap. And I would say to Keith, that's systemness. We're looking at systemness because you can't do well-being unless you're considering the systemness that would contribute to it. So um, I'm going to just remind you about one of the models of healthcare delivery system evolution. This is Neil Halfons. He talks about the acute care system as the 1.0. How many of you are familiar with the Neil Halfon 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 thing? Okay. So anyway, there's two and three. We are pretty much getting beyond this acute care system 1.0. And most of us, I would say probably here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, you're well into the coordinated seamless healthcare system 2.0 efforts. But the goal in many people's minds would be to get to this 3.0, which is a community integrated healthcare system with the population-centered population health-focused strategies. What the heck is that? We're going to talk about that for the next few minutes. So to keep in mind this wider view, looking outside yourselves, outside the department, outside Dartmouth-Hitchcock to say where do we fit in terms of these general directions that the federal government is starting to reward in terms of its change in payment system from reimbursing volume to reimbursing value. This is one way to look at it, is how are you going to get from 2.0 to 3.0? Well, we've done it pretty well, actually, in terms of things like tobacco. So here for Vermont shows you the youth prevalence from 1993 up until at least 2013. It's gone down. How did that happen? It wasn't just that one-on-one -on -one counseling in your offices, folks. If you look at the major interventions and the decline, it had to do with changing the environment to make the healthy choice the easy choice. It had to do with the policy interventions, prohibiting vending machines, with youth access quit lines, with uh, so many things that had to do with community and didn't have to do with the healthcare piece. 
looking at obesity. I love the upper corner pictures of that David statue. <laughs> you can see the American David versus the Italian David. Anyway, we're not doing so hot there, but in a sense we haven't really done the same environmental policy changes that we do with tobacco. So once again, work our way down the impact pyramid to get to making these choices, healthy choices. I was so impressed that you had skim milk and fruit salad and yogurt as your options along with your muffins this morning. So we're pediatricians. We care about kids. We know that early intervention matters. But here's the Nobel Prize winning work of Heckman and LaFontaine making that point. The earlier to intervene, the better off you're going to be. <clears throat> so part of this <clears throat> widening, excuse me, um, metaphor of spirals ever widening is to look not only wider, but to look earlier and to look longer. Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is doing just that. They're taking their $9 billion, their $500 million that they throw away at you trying to improve health every year by changing their mission to improving the culture of health in America. The federal government, again, is trying to do this shift towards health by rewarding value, not volume. So, yeah, this does require that we take a much longer look. And here, the cost savings in diabetes prevention shows that you got to spend in order to get reward, and that the time frame is often 10 or 20 years. But that fits well with the pediatric developmental outlook. So I'm going to end then with a quick description of, I mentioned uh, one of the amazing things that's going on in Vermont is the concept of a unified health budget, not just a unified health care budget. So how could this work? It would say that in the state of Vermont, we are spending more than just that that's spent on doctors and hospitals and clinics for sure, but where would we find it and how could we consider it in terms of a health budget? So we would start with personal care and what that's costing to individuals and families and the community and the health care piece and the public health. But then we keep going. What other state agencies are involved in creating a budget for health? And nationally and federally, what are the federal government, the foundations doing that could support this budget or culture of health in Vermont? So we actually have a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to do just this. We're taking the expenditure analysis that we've been doing for years, doctors and hospitals, and we're adding to it the Department of Public Health and now the Human Services budget. But that's not enough. Because if we're going to work our way down that CDC impact pyramid, we're going to look at the departments of agriculture, education, labor, and transportation. Let's take bike paths. Are they good or are they bad? Well, we think they're good, but then they, bikes do cause accidents. So we need a set of criteria, a kind of lens through which we can look at these other departments and say, OK, yeah, you are contributing to health by, let's say, this much through this effort. And looking at community investments for health, which I'll get to in a minute. And most importantly right now, federal and foundation investments. I mentioned Robert Wood Johnson has just a ton of money that they're going to be throwing at 
you potentially to solve this problem of creating a culture of health in America. The feds are doing the same thing. The number of grants that are now available to help you through this messy, awful transition as we move from paying for volume to paying for value, as we move from focusing on health care to focusing on health, as we widen the lens, as the metaphor of the spiral gets wider, now is the moment. I mention that because back then when I was in medical school here in 66, Medicaid and Medicare had just been passed. It was a wild time in healthcare. And the smart people gamed it. They gamed it big. And they built huge hospitals. That's what they did in that era around 1965. Certainly more people got coverage with Medicaid and Medicare, but the gaming led to this gigantic academic and other health centers, mostly hospitals. We're in that kind of tectonic plate shift again right now. You're going to be paid to do different things with different outcomes. So my question to you is, where do you want to be in the midst of this transition? Do you want to be in your office? Do you want to be in your clinic? Do you want to be in your practice watching this stuff come down the pike and you just shake your head and you say, this is ridiculous? Or do you want to take some time out of your busy lives and step back to look at this larger picture, to look at the CDC impact period, to look outside your comfort zone, to find a seat at the table where these decisions are being made? Because there's such a state of flux right now that you might say, oh, this is overwhelming. I don't know about ACOs. I don't know about ACHs that we're going to talk about. I don't know about a lot of this stuff. But nobody knows, because we're all figuring it out right now. And you're better off to be at the table where the decisions are being made than you are to be seeing it come at you now or in the next few years. So that's my call to action as a 60s activist, <laughs> having now passed my 60s into my 70s, to say, look around to your spiral journey and go wider. This afternoon at the Hanover Inn, Steve White and colleagues from Rethink Health of the Upper Valley, in an attempt to do just this, put community at the center of the focus with, along with health and healthcare providers, are going to be talking about things like the Blue Zone. This was an initiative that was started by people who looked at where the longest live people in the world. And then they realize that there's sort of a 20-mile radius that influences those people. So would there be a way to sort of optimize that 20-mile radius in people's lives? And they came up with nine of these sort of factors. I'm just using this as one example because this is happening this afternoon at the Hanover Inn. And Steve Voigt, the head of Rethink Health, the Upper Valley, is sitting here in pediatric grand rounds this morning. When I invited him, explaining I couldn't come this afternoon, he said, oh, would a business guy be allowed to come to pediatric grand rounds? You're not allowed, Steve. You need to be here. And some of your people, these people, need to be where you're going to be this afternoon. That's how we're going to solve this one. So if the Affordable Care Act is the caterpillar, maybe Vermont will turn out to be the butterfly. This is definitely a stage of the chrysalis forming, and then we'll see what's going to hatch at the end of this. But it's because of the turmoil that the opportunity for you to be part of the solution is really now. So in summary, we've touched on maybe four points in this talk before I end. 
What's population health? How does it differ from public health? It's a wider view that includes these non-medical contributors to health, the key systemness that we so need. It deals with disparities and how the parts fit together to improve health and moderate costs. Those are the twin goals, not one over the other, to improve health and moderate costs. How does population health help Vermont and the country and New Hampshire achieve these two goals? Well, let's just say it can't be achieved without population health approaches, which include these social determinants or the non-medical contributors to health. Um, so yeah, population health could be your panel of patients. It could be the roster in the department. It could be the community. It could be the country. The point is population health is a concept to widen your vision, widen your lens, take you farther out in the spiral journey. And what should keep your eye on in 2016 and 17? I think this all-payer model negotiation with the feds is a biggie. If it's going to happen, it will more or less be signed and sealed and delivered probably by the early fall. The Obama administration is very keen on seeing this happen. Again, what it does, it takes all that money, Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial monies, and it puts it into a pot. It also calls for some caps on expenditures in the 3.5% range. But heck, we've been doing that in the state for several years now. That's, that's easy. But what it calls for is more systemness. It calls for a statewide ACO. So far, the Coalition of the Willing is hanging in there, and people are continuing to craft and mold this thing as it goes along. If you're interested in all-payer model, be happy to go deeper into that subject. The well-being framework, I think, is really important. This well-being of Vermonters that asks those questions, how are Vermonters actually doing? Not do they have access to this and any of those questions. It's how are Vermonters actually doing? So widening your lens to which outcome measures are you going to be held accountable to, for? These are the ones that we, the Green Mountain Care Board, chose for ourselves. Health in all policies. The Health Commissioner, Harry Chen, has just formed a Health and All Policies Task Force that brings together the heads of transportation, agriculture, education, labor, and human services into a task force to look at where is health in your department as one of the stepping stones towards building this budget for health. Others, there are accountable communities for health initiatives now. I think Rethink Health of the Upper Valley is an example of one of those that shifts the locus of control and focus towards community, towards the Neil Halfon 3.0 in healthcare delivery systemness. systemness. So to end, well, I've talked a lot about outward spiral journeys. But spirals are wonderful because they go both outward and inward. So now to get a bit more personal to end, uh, you see this spiral depiction. And this is in a baby blanket that I made for one of my grandchildren from the cashmere goats of which I am a shepherdess, 12 of them. So one year, 12 goats, the barn, the water, the hay, the fence, the feed. And I combed out enough cashmere and spun it into yarn for one baby blanket. <laughs> you got to love goats. But also in this period of inward spiral journeying, 
we are spending a lot of time putting ourselves back in this larger context of nature and the nature of things and of the world. So here I am in my context of family with my kids and one of our younger goats. Um, as I've become a shepherdess, perhaps, of kids, definitely of goats, and maybe of ideas that I've tried to share with you today. So I wanted to end then um, this journey of now, the shepherdess path. This was taken a couple of years ago by John Douglas, who's here at Dartmouth, actually, in our driveway. It was the first day when the snow had melted enough for the goats to be free. And we ran up and down the driveway in joy together. So this lesson of the shepherdess path has been depicted through an initiative called the Walking Gallery of Healthcare, in which a young artist, Regina Holliday, takes the stories of doctors or of health professionals and literally paints the story for them to wear on their back. In my case, she chose the shepherdess path analogy and took that picture of the goats running down the driveway at you, and she turned it around to make this journey with the goats and me in my white coat and my husband Ralph in his hospital gown as he lives on this journey with moderate stage Alzheimer's disease. The goats have children on their back, our children and all children, and we're on this journey together, this outward inward spiral. So I wear this jacket as a person, as a symbol of uniting with other people on this journey together to improve health. And literally, I am wearing this story on my back. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. So I'm going to take the opportunity to continue our pre-talk conversation and hope that it continues as an ongoing conversation after the session. But Another way to represent an earlier slide that you presented, which showed the social determinants of health and the, and the, the allocation of resources, is to suggest that perhaps 10% of health is determined by health care. And our society allocates, if you use GDP, 22% of its resources on health care. There's a mismatch. Mm -hmm. And what I feel is that we are rightfully, or we are being asked for a better return on investment for that 22% and therefore changing, as you described, the conceptualization of healthcare. And my provocative proposition is that healthcare providers, by dint of training, and maybe by dint of interest, and by dint of need, are not equipped to make that transformation. Society will need repair people and diagnosticians, medicine. And our medical schools certainly do not train us to be anything other than diagnosticians. So my provocative proposition is that what we need is we need to scale back the 22% to more like six, seven, eight, or nine percent, like countries that have single healthcare, single-payer healthcare systems. And so, rather than just pontificating, hopefully kicking off an ongoing discussion, and I think single-payer allows you to have the leverage to ratchet back the amount of healthcare. And one of the things that TDI teaches us is, that in fact, less healthcare is not less healthy. In fact, in some cases, it's better for communities to have less healthcare. So. Will the all-payer model in Vermont Fremont Care Board have the wherewithal or the interest or the ability to scale back 
Now, maybe not in pediatrics, but I think less, we need less medicine and less health care, not asking medicine and health care providers to be something that they're not. I am so glad that this session is being recorded for posterity. This is your chair speaking. He's speaking a kind of wisdom and an important messages for you to follow your leader. So I think he's bringing up three points. The first has to do with your training now. So if you start to look at this migration of how are people now being trained versus how were we all trained. So I met my first PhD candidate at the Pardee School at RAND, because I'm on their board, whose PhD thesis is on single payer. First one. I know nurses who were doing clinical ICU work who are now not just case managers, but who are now being trained, retrained, to be community liaison nurses. I met a guy at a Rethink Health of the Upper Valley whose job it was, his job was motion. And he works in communities with the elderly and little kids to get them moving more. Where's the job description for a guy who does motion? These are new jobs, and they require new skills and new core competencies. So yeah, we need to retool ourselves, but the next generation will have jobs that you have never heard of. Secondly, about the allocation of scarce resources. Currently, we're spending 88 cents on the dollar in health care, 3 4 cents on the dollar for the population health prevention stuff. Part of why I wanted to get this grant to do the budget for health is to start to be able to model what if, instead of three or four cents on the dollar, we spent 10 cents on the dollar, or 25 cents on the dollar. What would the return on investment do if we were to actually change the allocation of scarce resources towards health and away from the exclusive focus on health care? We have the ability to do that. I mean, the studies on immunizations are there, the studies on diabetes, on uh, obesity prevention, you don't have to, it's not just the morbidly obese, the chronically ill, the people with the five different conditions. If you just take the people whose BMIs are in the 21 to 25 category and get them down, the number of people that you have now saved from diabetes far exceeds that number who end up at the moment with the advanced diabetes complicated situations. This is heresy for folks who are dedicating their lives to taking care of complex, critically ill adults. But as pediatricians, as people who do what I was saying, back it up, folks. Back it up to prevention, back it up to early intervention, back it up to kids, and put your more resources there, you'd have different outcomes. So training. Different jobs, different titles, different core competencies. Allocation of scarce resources, you can't do it until you've done the exercise of doing a health budget and you've modeled what the return on investment would be as you shift the resources. And lastly, having a centralized group like the Greenmount Care Board at least enables you to study what the heck you're doing and whether or not it's helping or hurting. So the all-payer model, uh, negotiations, not quite as far along as what you said so eloquently, Keith, in your summary remarks, but would get us on that path. I'm focusing really hard on the outcome measures that they're adopting. They're not broad enough as far as I'm concerned, but they aren't the old ones either. 
So I think following this negotiation will be very, very critical. Yes. Oh, you, you, you call. I'd like to take you back to your tobacco slide. Mm -hmm. Of course. <laughs> just, to, just to think about, um, so I agree with you that tobacco is a success story, but I don't, I don't feel like tobacco is a success because of the kinds of activities that you're talking about. Um, tobacco is a success because we had a really well-organized anti-tobacco movement in this country that fought the industry tooth and nail to get taxes raised, to show that passive smoke caused health problems, to get smoke-free laws, workplace laws, and to stay in first into communities and then statewide. And, and, and so you know, all the things that you show that, that caused the decline in tobacco in the United States had nothing to do with health care, had everything to do with this, to, this, tobacco, this fighting the industry to, to kind of change how tobacco's marketed and sold in the United States. We don't have that kind of activism around alcohol and food. In fact, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, this foundation that's rolling out the money, the money is saying we should partner with the fast food and the other industries to change how food is sold in America. And I can tell you, what I, from what I know about tobacco, those corporations that run, that are currently got good business models that are selling energy dense, really tasty food in the, in the, in the supermarkets, they're not going to change that model just because we change our health care system. They're only going to change their model if they're forced to. So, so my question to you is how do you believe that, what I'm saying, is that we need to kind of find a way to, to change how, how these other commodities that are causing health problems are create, you know, mm -hmm. produced, marketed, and sold in the United States. And do you think we'll do that by partnering with the industries, or do we have to, to, to develop activist groups to fight these industries the way we fought about? Yeah, well, thank you for your comment. I, I, I thought that that slide actually did contribute to your point, which is that these are all the policy interventions that were that contributed, uh, but that the larger story is one of people coming together and saying, we don't want this to be the norm anymore, and so the social norms also change. So sure, of course I believe that. Um, I think we're part of this system, this movement, in a sense, means being more inclusive, means being active. In terms of uh, partnering with the enemy, I guess I'm uh, personally, this is just a personal statement, I'm up for working with people who want to improve health. A few of those people happen to be in the industry. And I'm thinking of one, Scott Ratson, who works for InBev, which is an Anheuser-Busch organization that is doing tremendous work in Africa around limiting alcohol use in relation to traffic accidents. We were talking over dinner last night about all the students and residents and faculty that go to parts of the world now. We're talking about Tanzania in particular. And I asked, what kind of safety do you provide for your Dartmouth folks who are going to Africa when it comes to transportation? Transportation fatalities are huge and growing in the developing world. To say that you have evacuation insurance is kind of end-of-the-line thinking. <laughs> when I go with the International Rescue Committee and IRC on any of these ventures to Sub-Saharan Africa, to Burmese camps, we have IRC vehicles with seatbelts. We do not drive at night because it's not just a risk to you for an accident. It's all the people you can't see on roads that are not lit. In that case, 
I think Scott Ratson is on to an important topic, and I'm happy to work with him around their transportation um, improvements in Africa. Do you think we need a soda tax? Hey, I never, this is very personal, I never, I never mind paying taxes. I think taxes are good. I'm happy to pay my share. So I don't have a thing about taxes. What I want to do is see how my taxes, my efforts, your efforts, our partnerships can improve health. So, so Jim, just so that as much as I sort of provocatively suggested a more circumscribed role for healthcare providers, it was you and others in healthcare who helped lead a lot of those movements that you suggested that curtail tobacco. So we still can partner with and be aware of those roles. And for the department and for Karen to know, Jim is the director of the Coop Institute now, which is mm -hmm. very much its focus is on these non-communicable diseases related to consumption and multinational corporations. So our department and our institution is a future nidus for this work, I hope. I, I, I'm just skeptical that Coke and Pepsi is going to partner with us on a soda tax or <laughs> warning labels on, on, on their soda. Because you fought the battle with tobacco. Kim's been waiting. Um, thanks for sharing your vision with our group. Um, I'm the pediatric residency program director, um, and so appreciate the sort of thinking about it from the training perspective. And just wondered if um, you have any either comments for our trainees um, about sort of what they should be um, thinking about um, in, in their phases of training and skills to acquire and whatnot in order to be prepared for this. Um, it's a big conversation among our program director organization. And there's a lot more flexibility, particularly in residency now, about tailoring your curriculum. And so just wondered if you had any I'm so glad to both have you say your comment and to meet you and to say what a phenomenal opportunity it is because you're surrounded by these initiatives. Get out of your comfort zone. Get your residents out of their comfort zone. Hang out with people like Steve Voigt, a leader in the business community who's dropped what he was doing to think about We Think Health of the Upper Valley. It's those kinds of getting out and experiencing as I did in upcountry Liberia and in the South Bronx. Those were the imprinting experiences that led to the rest of what I ended up doing in the Towers of Power. So to imprint your residents with this larger experience in community with other people who care about health but aren't pediatricians. Any skills-based recommendations? Um, I worked mostly in the humanitarian uh, sector on core competencies for humanitarian work, because obviously a surrogate of having a doctor or nursing degree says nothing about your ability to do humanitarian relief work. In fact, many doctors do harm rather than good because they don't have the skills. So I can't really speak to a curriculum. Um, but I could probably put you in touch with people who are working on that aspect of it. I know uh, the GHEC, which has now been renamed the Global Health Education Consortium, they're working on much more of these sort of social determinants baked into residency training. And I can put you in touch with some specific people for whom that is their passion and that's their focus. Dr. Olson, on a rare appearance here. Yes, and Art, and Art is so glad to see you, and thank you for all your contributions. Um, years ago, Saul Blackman had a great phrase. He said, the doors to the medical center, our former chairs, um, swing both ways. And I'm kind of listening to you about think globally and act locally. And, you know, everyone sees an issue locally that having a partner in the community is a better way for action than grumbling about it in your clinic. 
and we have a we have a reachable community. We, we have community and resources from places. And I don't think anybody's talked about catch grants from the academy that provide startup friends to partner or plan with the community entity, community people to build activities with pediatricians. Don't forget, it was a pediatrician in Flint who figured out that children were having all of that lead. Mm -hmm. so, we may be clinicians, but we are very powerful if we take off the blinders and think beyond one patient at a time. So I would encourage people, you know, as you think about the whole world, also think about now what I see and who I can partner with locally. Thank you. That's an excellent closing point, but I, I know those who want to come and share comments and meet Steve, which is what I'm going to do. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.